Well, good morning, Windsor. It is very good to see you. Uh, at least those I can see. It's getting a little harder. It is an amazing thing to be able to be here with you again. My family and I were here with you from 2012 to 2015. Uh, so many of you weren't here at that point. Um, and so I, I hope to be able to chat with you after service, perhaps. Uh, many of you were, and it's, it's been lovely to, to get to talk with some of you before now and get to see your faces. Uh, this is one of, one of the delights that I find in, in preaching, is simply being able to actually see your faces instead of the back of your heads. I want to draw a connection between communion, which we just, just participated in, and what uh, we're going to think about for a bit from, uh, from Ephesians. We've just been celebrating the death of Christ, and, uh, and as we're doing that, and as we were singing in Christ alone, is that me? My beard, maybe? Yes, it's my beard. It's the joys of now living in Minnesota, where you need a beard. Okay, if my beard gets loud again, please just let me know. Where was I? Well, uh, communion, that's where we were. I was thinking about direction. What direction are you facing in life? Communion is a lot about direction, though we might not think about it that way. We, we face backwards as we think about and focus on Christ's death for us, for our sins. We face forward into the future because it says uh, we, we celebrate this together, uh, proclaiming his death until he comes. So we're facing forward because of communion, uh, thinking about when Christ will return. We also are implicitly facing up because that's where Christ is now, resurrected and enthroned. So until he comes, we're facing backwards, we're facing forwards, we're facing up. But we're also facing out because Christ did not only spill his blood for us right here. And so I'm going to read a passage from Revelation, even though this is not what, uh, what we'll be considering today. But it is a helpful transition from communion and celebration of Christ's blood to a bit further afield for us. In Revelation chapter 5, the elders and some amazing angelic creatures are around the throne where Jesus is sitting, like a lamb who was slain but is alive, and this is what they sing, say, shout, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood... You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on earth. Did you hear that? When we're celebrating Christ's blood... We not only face backwards and forwards and up, but we face out, remembering all of the people from every tribe, language, and nation for whom Jesus spilled that blood. We're going to think a little bit about the outward direction, <clears throat> the outward direction this morning. 
Uh, and to do that, please turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. As you're turning there, please contemplate. What is the direction in life that I'm facing? A lot of people think about where I am in a certain point in relation to others. You know, maybe I'm, I'm more holy than others, or maybe I'm less holy than others. I'm at this point, and they're over there. But I think it's less about where exactly I am in a point related to others, and more about what direction I'm facing. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the good news of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Let me pause right there. Now what we're going to do this morning is read a little bit and then reflect on uh, how we see what Paul describes, how we see that maybe in our own lives and around the world. I'll show you some some pictures and tell you some stories uh, of people around the world. Uh, But the reason I'm going to do that is because of the, the ministry that I work with. I get to interact with people from all over the world, people who trust Jesus and are trying to help others follow him, but they're having a very difficult time doing that. So let me mention to you a number. Some of you like numbers, some of you don't, but I think you will uh, be intrigued by this one. I mentioned it three years ago, which means those of you who weren't here won't know it, and those of you who were here won't remember it. One pastor who has been trained, trained in how to understand scripture, how to preach and teach, how to pastor. So one pastor who's been trained, uh, there is one for every 250 Christians in the West. So here, Northern Ireland, in the States, 250 Christians for every one pastor who has been trained. But if you go outside of the West, if you go south, to Latin America, to Africa, if you go east, to Asia, Southeast Asia, anywhere else in the world, the number is no longer one trained pastor for every 250 Christians. It is one trained pastor for every 450,000 Christians. Can you picture that? 450,000 people following Jesus, and there's one person who has been guided in God's word in how to pastor, how to preach, how to teach. There's a tremendous need in the world for shepherds who are already doing the hard work but but floundering in so many places, for shepherds to be guided and trained in God's word to take care of the sheep that God has given them. I'm part of a mission agency called TLI, Training Leaders International. And our mission is to bring training in the Bible to pastors and other leaders in the Christian communities all over the world who don't have access to training. 
Uh, I'm in charge of curriculum, so I design and write the material. My colleagues then take it, go and train, and then the people that we train pass it, use it to pass it on to others and train others. And I get the benefit of traveling and teaching as well as sitting in a computer writing. One of the things that I find as I hear about more and more brothers and sisters all over the world uh, coming to faith in Christ and being trained in the word, uh, thankfulness just bursts out of my heart in a way that it never really did before. I've grown in thankfulness to God as I meet these brothers and sisters and as I remember people like you. And I'm, I'm reminded of this as I look at, at the next verse in Ephesians. So you were included in Christ. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. It guarantees your inheritance to God's glory. Verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord, Jesus, and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And that's my wife and my, and my girls. Uh, that's what we do for you. We remember you in our prayers. And as I hear about your faith and how it's developing, and as I hear about the love that you show for each other, I'm filled with so much more thankfulness. And, and we pray for you. And we don't stop praying for you. And that's the same when I think about brothers and sisters further afield. Let me show you a, a picture of what I mean. If you can see that screen, it's the globe, and those red dots are all the places that we are training pastors and other leaders. So you can imagine all of the diverse stories of people's faith and love for each other. Here's one example. I'm not going to tell you exactly where this is, since I think this is being recorded, is that right? Um, it's in, a, it's in a dangerous place. I'll tell you a bit more of that in a moment. Uh, somewhere in the Middle East. These brothers, these pastors, are shepherding among them 150 villages. There are 10 of them. Each of them kind of oversees 15 villages. And we get to train these men. These men are in danger uh, one of them in particular, the leader of the group, uh, he's been taken into custody many times and questioned. And in the, our last training, uh, he said to us with tears in his face, every time they called me in, I did not know if that was my last day on earth. And I'm thinking of my wife who's sick and my kids, uh, and I don't know if I'm saying goodbye to them and trusting them into God's hands, and I won't return. By God's grace, he keeps returning. And we've asked them, well, do you need to pause the training? And he said, absolutely not. These people that we're pastoring need us to know what we're doing from God's word. So these men are risking their lives to be trained in God's word so they can better feed the sheep that are given to them. Let me uh, read you part of a letter that he wrote to us. Before I read that, I need to tell you one more glimpse after we train a group of pastors for a week intensive, they go back to home and minister for another four months, and one of their tasks is to take what they've just learned and pass it on to others in four-month period before they come back for another course. We give them material translated into their own language so they have a tool to use. So he, he wrote us about, he and a few others, joining up to do exactly that, 
He says, greetings in the most precious name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Good news. In this seminar, 27 participants participants presented themselves to be disciples of Christ, and they made a promise to give more time to learn the Word of God and share it with others. Amen. When I hear things like that, their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the brothers and sisters, I, I thank God, and I don't stop, and I would love for you to continue praying for people like these men. Though it doesn't actually stop there, this is a picture of that seminar, by the way. Uh, The women on one side, the men on the other side, and they're presenting training in God's word, and 27 of those people that you see professed faith in Christ because of their training. But here's something something else that's interesting that I want you to know, and I'll read you a part of his letter. Lindsay and myself are not the only ones praying for you. You know that, of course, but did you know that these ten brothers who who are literally on the doorstep of death, they pray for you? Part of his letter says this, Brother, we've been trying our best to serve God and reach out remote areas uh, here as much as possible, much as we can. Sorry, I need to step a bit closer. To reach out to the remote areas as much as we can with our limited knowledge of the word of God. But now we have a good Bible study to win more souls for the Lord. Brother, please share our special thanks to the people and churches supporting you and us who are the real part of this soul-winning work in this country. We are always in prayer for you. And that's a plural you, as becomes clear in his letter. These guys are praying for you because they know that without our teachers going, they're not trained. Without me and my team writing the material, that doesn't happen. But without people like you actually sending us and equipping us to do this, none of this takes place, at least in their experience, in their life right now. So they wanted us to tell you, thank you, you are a major part of the soul-winning activity and training of pastors in one of many places, and the people who might die at any point are praying for you. What do we pray for others? So Paul says, I never stop giving thanks for you and praying for you, but then he tells us what he actually prays for the Ephesians. And I think this is very instructive for our own prayer for others. So if you look at verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? Why does he ask for that? Well, fortunately, he tells us. We don't have to guess. So that you may know him better. Father, please give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so they can know you better. That prayer reminds me of uh, what some of our new Mongolian friends uh, have said about, about their training. 
few months ago, I went to Mongolia. You can see, uh, see me in that picture with the group that I was helping train. Um, if you look at this, uh, this young lady right here in the middle and this young man right here, that's a husband and wife couple, Sana and Unkwa. They minister in China. They're Mongolians. Uh, and they've been under a lot of pressure, as a lot of people are there. Uh, the government and the police are squeezing the communities in many places. Uh, and they shared with us that uh, they can't have more than four people together at the same time. And if the police ever see that more than four people are gathered uh, in, their, in their church, in their home, uh, they break it up. And so, so Sana was talking about how frustrating that is. <laughs> I mean, how do, you, how do you shepherd your flock when a gathering like this is absolutely unthinkable and more than four people gets dispersed? He says, I, I don't know how to pastor if my flock keeps getting separated. But then he said something really, uh, really profound and humbling to me. He said, so what do we do in this time when we can't minister the way that we would like to minister? Well, God has created some space for me to get training. He's never been trained. And he is profoundly engaging God's word in, this, in these training times. He says, because I've had pressure put on me, I actually do have space now to know God better by learning his word better, and that he knows that will equip him to share God with others. It's like, uh, it's like he knows that he needs the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that he can know God better. And he's, in a sense, delighting in his suffering because it's creating a moment to do that. Paul says in verse 18, I pray that the hearts, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Why? Well, again, fortunately he says, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Okay, I pray that, that you, that your, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened so that you can know the hope to which he's called you. Hope. That's something that not a lot of Christians actually dwell on. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And so a lot of Christians will then focus on love and totally forget about faith and hope. But love only is the greatest in the sense that it remains when we're with Christ forever. We don't need that kind of faith or that kind of hope when we're in God's presence. But love is always there. But now, in this time, these three remain. Faith and hope and love. How much do you dwell on hope? How much does it influence how you relate to other people, whether they're brothers and sisters in this community or, or coworkers or neighbors? How much does hope feed into who you are and the direction you're facing? 
but it's a specific type of hope. It's, it's a regal resurrection hope. Or if you don't like the word regal, it's a, a royal resurrection hope. Why might I describe it like that? Am I just making it up because it sounds cool? Or is there a reason? If you carry on, look at the next verse. Verse 19 the hope of God's incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That power that he has given to us, which is part of our hope, is the same power by which he raised Jesus from the dead, resurrection hope, and seated him on the throne in the heavenly places, regal, royal hope. And we'll come back to this theme in just a little bit, but I have a question. Where exactly is Jesus seated? Raised from the dead, seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly realms, but there's more. Look at verse 21. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Another one of our brothers, a man named Diona. This is Diona. He's in Liberia. You can see that black thing next to him under his feet. That's the remains of a tree. Diona, Diona has caught this vision of the Christ who is far above every rule and authority, power and dominion. So Thinking of direction, what direction are you facing? Paul has just lifted our heads higher than you can possibly think, far above everything imaginable. And Diona has caught this vision for Christ, and that's why he's standing in front of this charred black thing, this former tree. This was a site that was used for generations in Liberia for satanic worship and human sacrifice. That was the tree where they would sacrifice the humans. Well, the satanic cult kind of moved on, and this was just left there. But for a long time, no one, no one would even go near this place. Um, it was on sale, this property. Nobody would touch this. Nobody's going to buy this place that was used for human sacrifice and satanic worship. The powers and authorities of the heavenly places are very real to them here and especially in this spot. But Diona has a different vision of just how powerful those real powers and authorities are because he has a vision of just where Christ is seated. So he said, I'll buy that. He promptly burned down the tree that was for human sacrifice and he's standing there talking about his vision for what God is going to do in that place. And since then, Diona has planted a church and has started a training facility and this is the training facility that is right there where that, where that tree was. This is just one little glimpse 
there are a hundred pastors from this region of Liberia that come to this spot that we get to train in God's word. And there are 150 more on the waiting list because we couldn't cope with that many people. So we're going to go through a second round and use some of these men uh, who have shown particular gifts to help co-teach with us so that this pattern can, can take deeper root in the Liberian indigenous population there. All, all because this man Diona caught the vision for Christ and Diona's direction of life is higher than the highest heavens, even beyond the powers and authorities of the demonic forces that are so real. How does the direction, the upward direction that Paul points us, how does that affect your life? As you invest in, in these people through TLI and me, uh, you, it's clearly affecting you and your life, but you're not only engaged with us around the world, you live daily here kind of in the, the mundane moments of life, right? Where you're cooking a meal, you're in a, a difficult meeting, you're out for coffee. How does this vision of the enthroned Christ practically affect who you are and, and how you act? Look at chapter two, verse one, the next statement. Because Paul, who has lifted our our eyes to the highest place possible, now plummets our eyes very deep down. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What a stark contrast to where Christ is. Highest heavens above everything, and all of a sudden, but you, who exactly are you? Who exactly am I? We, apart from this Christ, dead and under wrath. Paul has uh, what may be one of the most, um, one of the, uh, the greatest understatements in the Bible in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which a lot of us can quote. He says, All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. That sounds to me like a vast understatement, a truth, I'm not arguing with that, but an understated truth. We fall short of God's glory. I mean, when, when you really catch the vision of just how high Christ is, and you, you start to, to really grapple with just what it means that God is glorious, how high that is, and then you see us dead in our sins apart from him and under wrath and under the rulership of Satan, you fall short of God's glory. Oh, oh, I I pray that that sinks in more deeply to me and I pray that for you and I pray that for Diona and these men and women who are training in Liberia and elsewhere Uh, because it's really only when we see Christ at the highest height and just how deep we are 
that I think we start to truly follow Christ in a more profound way, an important way for this world. But God, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. How does that work exactly? That we are under God's wrath and because of his great love for us, he makes us alive even while we're in our sins. That's a profound mystery that's worth contemplating more, but we won't do that here. I want to point you to a man in the Philippines, and I seem to have removed that picture, so you have to use your sanctified imaginations for this. Uh, we get to train missionaries in the Philippines. These are Filipinos who are missionaries to other Filipino tribes in the mountainous jungle regions of the Luzon Island. Uh, so these are pastors, missionaries, church planters taking the gospel around the islands of the Philippines. We were, we were thinking about a passage in Mark, Mark's gospel. Uh, the first half of Mark, chapter 1 to 8, is all about Jesus' authority, authority over sins, authority over the, the demons, authority to teach, authority to forgive sins, authority to heal, authority over the storms. I mean, just packed. Jesus' authority over everything, Mark chapters 1 to 8. And, and these brothers and sisters were getting so excited about this. And then you get to Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and then the rest of the gospel, where Jesus shifts and says, basically, well, what am I here to do with this authority? And the answer Jesus gives is, suffer and die for you. And if you're going to be my disciple, you do it too. And one of these pastors just stopped everything and he said, I don't understand this. Why would Jesus, with that type of authority, why would he suffer for people? That's the very heart of God and of the good news of the gospel right there. And he was suddenly, he's a pastor and missionary, and suddenly face to face with the very character of God that he would have such glory be at the highest heights and yet, and yet have great love and mercy and enter our depths to pull us out of it. It was a tremendously rich time to, to just talk about the heart of God and the gospel and then what that, how that should affect our lives. Those of us who have authority in some way, how do we use our authority? Do we use our authority in the shocking way that Jesus does? As, he's, as he puts himself into the depths of our death, bearing our sin, in order to, what does it say? Make us alive with him. In fact, do you remember that, that phrase about hope that I mentioned? What exactly were the words that I used? Regal and resurrection, that's right. Uh, that's because of who? Of Jesus, the Father raised him and seated him on the throne. But you know what? He then says the same exact thing about us. 
Look at this in verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. The royal, regal, resurrection hope with our eyes directed at Christ and what he has done for us. And he gives a reason. In order that. So why, why would God do that for us? Raise us and seat us with Christ in the heavenly realms. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. He wants to show into the the coming ages the incomparable riches of his grace and kindness. Would that be our mission in life, through our lives here and around the world, to announce the incomparable riches of God's kindness in Christ Jesus? Because that's why he has saved us. So now the question comes, how exactly do we respond to all of this facing the highest heights, having to face our deepest depths, having to then face the person from the highest heights coming into our deepest depths to bring us to the highest heights? What direction do we face in life? What do we do with that practically? Let me mention just a few things. Look first at verse 8. It's by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not from yourselves it's a gift of God it's not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do So as we know, we're not saved by works. We were dead in sin. We're obviously not saved by works. But we are saved for works, for good works. One of the practical ways Paul gives the Ephesians to participate in the good works that God prepared is by Jews and Gentiles in Christ setting aside, breaking down their barriers and hostility and actually serving each other in unity, seeking each other's growth and blessing. So there are so many ways that we could encourage each other to to live out good works, but I'm going to focus on that one that Paul focuses on in Ephesians, and I'm going to do it by telling you about these two men from Ethiopia. The man with the pink shirt, his name is Fakadu. He is from the Amhara tribe, and the man next to him is Lemmy, and he's from the Oromo tribe. I don't know if you're up on some of the difficulties in Ethiopia, but those two tribes are two of the biggest, most prominent in Ethiopia. The Amhara people and the Oromo people are killing each other. And the current president is stoking that hatred, and it's getting worse. In fact, only miles from this training site, where we're guiding Oromo people and Amhara people in God's word, Literally miles, there are, uh, about when this was taken, uh, there was an uprising of Oromo people, and they killed some Amhara people. They stoned some police and some firemen who tried to calm things down. The Amhara people returned the favor. 
And so after this week of training, these two people whose, whose families and tribes are killing each other just miles away take time to pray for each other's safety because they've, the direction they're facing in life is very different than the direction that their tribes are facing. They are together facing the highest king of kings, Jesus, which has implications across, sideways. And they're looking at each other, facing each other in a new type of love. And so they're praying against their own tribes and for their former enemies to please be, God, keep them safe as they travel home for their families. This is a, this is a glimpse of one way that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works as we're facing the King of Kings. So my question for you to end on is, what, what direction are you facing in your ordinary life? Just like in their ordinary life and in my ordinary life, daily. Where are your eyes fixed and how is that impacting how you relate to people, especially people with whom you disagree, find yourself at odds, or at least are simply different? I'm going to pray now to close us, uh, to close this time, and could the worship team come up while I pray? And they're going to lead us through one more song, Oh, Praise the Name. But as they come up, let's pray together. Glorious Father, Lord Jesus, who you are enthroned over everything, Holy Spirit, uh, who is our deposit guaranteeing the inheritance, one God, we ask that you would encourage us in our faith for the Lord and our love for each other. Encourage us in our investment in people locally and, at, and around the world. And also, please, God, challenge us each deeply for how we can display your kindness even more profoundly locally and around your world. Help us celebrate your kindness and your reign and the regal resurrection hope that you have secured in us through Christ. Help us praise you now in response. In Jesus' name, amen.